0: Welcome to the Resources for Integrated Care webinar, Promising Practices for Meeting the Behavioral Health Needs of Duly Eligible Older Adults. This podcast is excerpted from a webinar presented live on August 2, 2018. In this podcast, Dr. Neha Jain, Assistant Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine, and Andrea Lavelle, a family caregiver, discuss caring for Andrea's mother.
1: Good afternoon to all the attendees, and I I truly appreciate this platform to be able to give a brief description um, and hopefully beneficial of my mom. She is currently 67, um, and I'm going to go a little further back. Uh, In 2013, my mother was residing in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. She began to exhibit some concerning behaviors that were reported by family members. At this time, I was residing in Connecticut. We had daily communication and frequent visits, so I believe that she was doing quite well. At the time, she lived independently. She drove her car at least two to three times a week, to and from activities uh, such as the Y and church services. After receiving these reported concerns, I flew to Winston-Salem to assess exactly what was going on with my mother at the time. The report and concerns expressed by my family were that my mom was exhibiting some obsessive thoughts about her committing Medicare fraud, and that she was being watched and became very paranoid. Once there, I began the process to have her assessed, and these were some of the challenges and obstacles that we encountered. Knowledge of the behavioral health service system in Winston-Salem and access to information, information. When I was finally able to get her evaluated, it was through the emergency department. The process for admission for a behavioral health bed wasn't explained. The process down to minor details such as restricted visitation hours in the inpatient unit wasn't provided. No one called for collateral information regarding her medical or prior mental health history and Dr. Jane touched on how important some of that, uh, most of that is um, for diagnosing and treatment. After several days of talking and meeting with their care plan team, I made a decision to relocate her back to Connecticut. And during her first year back, I identified a prescriber and therapist that she saw routinely. um, And she remained stable for approximately a year until her second inpatient um, in January 2015. The regression at that time and currently continues to be unknown. Um, Since then, she's had a third hip replacement surgery, and suffered a severe ankle fracture, which led her actually to be out of her home for eight months and in a rehab facility. The medical issues have um, continued to exacerbate the mental, uh, mental health issues, excuse me, which has led to two additional inpatient stays. One, uh, the last one, as recently as this past April. Uh, Dr. Jane, I'll turn it back over to you. Thank you, Andrea. Um,
2: thank you for the slide change. So when I saw, when I first saw Andrea's mom, um, she had had those two recent episodes of psychosis, and she was inpatient in the hospital where I first saw her. She was already on the medications, uh, but still having a lot of delusions about having committed this fraud and that she was going to be arrested and imprisoned. Um, She ended up receiving acute electroconvulsive therapy, acute ECT, with good response, and then she was discharged from the hospital. She was doing quite well. A few months later, I actually saw her in the outpatient setting since they decided to transfer care, and she was doing quite well. She was on her medications, and she was doing well, but then that coming winter, she declined again. The depression came back. The psychosis, the delusions came back. Uh, But we were starting to recognize these by now. So we planned doing outpatient ECT. She absolutely did not want to go back into the hospital if that was avoidable. But unfortunately, the referral was made, and then she ended up having that fall with the fracture, which led to her getting hospitalized and then several months stay in rehab, and she couldn't get ECT. So when I saw her again several months later after she got out of rehab, she was still fairly sick. So we made another referral to ECT, and she ended up getting outpatient ECT, as well as maintenance, and she continued on medications. And she did well for a while, but then she developed EPS, uh, movement side effects with these medications. Uh, So she developed some tremors, some stiffness, some trouble walking, and she couldn't do all the things that she used to do. And family had to establish services with aides who would come into the home to assist her with these things. Then she did okay for a while and she developed a medical condition, which was very painful and led to worsening of her anxiety, ended up getting hospitalized for that medical condition, um, had surgery. After the surgery, the condition improved and her anxiety improved. However, when she was discharged from the hospital due to some sort of a translation error, her antipsychotic was accidentally lowered. And she continued on that lower dose, and it was very interesting because I saw her at a follow-up, and um, the caregiver, uh, not Andrea, the, the residential caregiver said to me, "Oh, she's doing great since you lowered the medicine, and I said, what? And so we went back and reviewed the medications, and she was on a lower dose. So initially, she looked great, and then her symptoms returned, and she ended up receiving ECT again, which again led to improvement in symptoms slide is to highlight those same challenges that Andrea talked about, the challenges with medical comorbidities, with communication between providers, with making sure that medications um, are transferred correctly from one setting to the other that a lot of people face. Next slide. And so um, For the past few visits since I've been seeing Andrea's mom, she's been doing well. She is currently receiving outpatient maintenance ECT once every few weeks. Um, And again, providing this continuity of care, making sure. Another incident that happened when she was last in the hospital was that I received an email from the doctor saying she's doing much better, we're thinking of discharging her. And it just so happened that I was on call and I went in to see her And she seemed very delusional to me. So then I spoke with Andrea, and Andrea said, no, she is still delusional. She has just stopped telling the doctors what's going on. And so I was able to then reach out to the inpatient team and say, hey, we still think she's very sick. And then they made the decision to do some more ECT while she was inpatient. So providing that continuity, and imagine if we were all in a different setting, it would have been next to impossible. Now she's doing well in terms of the mood and the delusions, but the quality of her life remains impaired. There's a lot of things that she was able to do that she can't do anymore. And again, family is considering a move to an assisted living with more assistance. And last time I spoke with her, she's obviously ambivalent about it because she likes being where she is. But again, it has limited her quality of life. Um, Next slide. So... We wanted to highlight some tips for caregivers, and and I'll take this back to Andrea in a minute, that we found helpful um, for caregivers when dealing with complicated situations like this, or really any situation where you're taking care of an elderly person. Number one, making sure that you have an accurate and updated medication list. It's very helpful if you can do this on a computer document like Microsoft Word or Excel, because then you can just delete and add and change stuff. Don't forget to list supplements, over-the-counter medications, as needed medications. Um, If you bring the list to the doctor, make sure they make a copy and take your list back or have your own copy before you give it to them. Another thing, make a list of questions to ask the doctor. It's very common if I'm seeing 20 people in a day for me to forget somewhere along the line that this person may be completely unfamiliar with the system. So asking questions like, well, once we leave here, how do I contact you? What do I do if there is an emergency overnight? Do you have a social worker? What do I do if you're asking me to keep track of sleep? How do you want me to do that? Is there a chart? Is there a form I can use? If you go away, who's going to be covering for you? There are no silly questions, and anything that gives you more information will be useful to you. And lastly, and again, I want to highlight this, please do not hesitate to ask for help for yourself. Caregiver burnout is a huge issue. It's a very significant real issue, and help is there if you need it. And I will go back to Ms. Laval for her insights as far as caregivers and and tips that could be useful for
1: caregivers. Thank you, Dr. Jane. Um, So my tips over the past five years of this journey with my mom Um, would be the don't be afraid to ask questions, as Dr. Jane has highlighted, or express concerns. Keep accurate and up-to-date medical records at all times. Um, Building a supportive network, like she just mentioned, um, for yourself to aid you through this process. I can't express how beneficial that's been for me to have such a supportive network around me to help me be the best advocate for my mom. Um, I would also say research as much as possible. Build your own knowledge and become better informed. Understand your legal rights um, to act on your loved one's behalf or as a caregiver, um, because I know initially early on that was um, that's an obstacle that we encountered. Um, I thank God that my mom had things in place early on, like power of attorney and her will and everything. But had I not had those things, it would have restricted me to decision-making um, in this process. Building a strong uh, treatment team, like Dr. Jane mentioned, uh, our family is so blessed to have Dr. Jane and the other providers um, and caregivers um, that are aids in our lives that help on a daily basis to keep my mom stable. Um, and even when these inpatients have occurred, they've been, as the years have gone on, addressed a lot sooner, and we've been able to catch things a lot quicker because the communication is there. And last but not least, I say don't be afraid to be a ferocious advocate and I thank everybody for their time.
2: So just to summarize, duly eligible older adults are a uniquely vulnerable population because of all of the challenges we just talked about. Management of behavioral health conditions in this population is, is complex and challenging. The episodic nature, the waxing and waning of behavioral health conditions often makes treatment a moving target. You address one thing and something else pops up, and that's why having a multidisciplinary and multimodal approach incorporating not just pharmacological, but also psychological, biosocial, and spiritual methods is very useful.
0: Thank you for listening. This podcast is presented by the Loon Group and is supported through the Medicare-Medicaid Coordination Office at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is dedicated to helping beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality health care that includes the full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated, coordinated care, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovations in care models. To learn more about our current efforts and resources, please visit our website, Or follow us on Twitter for more details. Our Twitter handle is at integrate underscore care.